Well, good morning. So glad that you guys are here. Brave the elements to come out and worship with us today. It's a, a good thing that I 100% believe in God's sovereignty. Otherwise, I'd take some credit for this. I did get on Facebook and Twitter and brag a little bit. I guaranteed no, no snow at all this week. So that was, that was a little rough for me. Thank you for not really beating me up. I, I did get one tweet that was pretty good. It said, well, the guy can teach, but he's no prophet. And... Uh, Never claimed to be, so thankfully I feel good about that. But thanks for flexing with us on the schedule. And, and next week we'll return. We've got our normal Saturday night service at 5 o'clock. Really encourage you guys to try that. That's a great service to invite somebody out for dinner or out to a movie or shop and say, hey, let's swing by church, that 5 o'clock service on Saturday. And, of course, normally our two services, Sunday at 9 and at 10.30. So next week we'll be back to that schedule. And the week after that, for the holiday, we'll be back to having just the one service at 10.30. We'll do that December 22nd, December 29th. So remember, just one service at 1030 on those two days. But thank you so much for being with us. We're going to start our teaching time today with a little Kung Fu Panda. So you have to wonder maybe where we're going. But if you've been with us, you know we're in this discipleship series. We're going to start kind of winding this down. So we will look at the challenge to make disciples who make disciples. Last week, we looked at some of the methods that Paul used as he encouraged and discipled Timothy. And today, we're going to look at some Old Testament discipleship. It's this relationship between Moses and the guy that he poured into, the guy that he discipled, the guy who was going to take the mantle of ministry from him. It's a guy named Joshua. But before we look at that, I want to highlight just a few of the specific things that we've been looking at, and hopefully we can figure out what what are the things we're supposed to apply in our own discipling relationships. Because I want to make sure that we don't paint this process out to be some kind of cookie-cutter thing. Say, well, if you just do these certain things, then you'll get these particular results, and it'll be guaranteed. I don't think we can say that. In our clip here, Master Shifu was an excellent kung fu teacher. He really was. Now, he was pretty hard on his star pupils, the Furious Five, but then he got this new student. It's a different kind of student, this big fat panda named Poe. And so through the course of the movie, if you've seen it, he tries to go through these training methods that have always worked for him, but they don't seem to work with Poe. He wants him to become the dragon warrior, and it just didn't happen. And so what happens is that those training methods that Shifu was comfortable with, those aren't going to work with a different kind of student. And so in this clip, we see a light bulb kind of comes on for Shifu. He realizes, hey, if I want to achieve results, if I want to equip this panda to be a kung fu warrior, because really pandas aren't very good at kung fu. I don't know if you've ever seen them in the zoo. You know, you never see them doing any kind of you know, kung fu kind of stuff. But here in the animated world, he wants to equip this panda And so he realizes he's going to have to use some different techniques, stuff that maybe he's not familiar with. So what he ends up using is Poe's love of food as a motivator for him for kung fu training. And it's pretty creative, and it's pretty effective. At the end of the movie, he just whips Tai Lung. It's great. So we're going to stretch out in this area, and hopefully we're going to learn there's methods that might work for us as we disciple people. The folks that we're discipling, you know, they they really like the methods we're using. But then probably also through experience and through trial and error, we'll realize, hey, there's things that we're trying that don't really work with people. And so we we may have to learn something new ourselves as we go out and make disciples. Remember when Dan walked us through the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ? Those weren't cookie-cutter guys, were they? They had different backgrounds. They had different strengths and weaknesses. They didn't even really look like quality choices. But Jesus discipled them. Well, how did he do that? Well, the answer is he did it by discipling them. (laughs) You know, he, he invested time in them. He met them where they were. He lived his life alongside of them. But as he did it, he didn't use the same methods over and over again. He adapted his methods to the different guys and to the different situations. 
The only one truly consistent method that I see that Jesus used to disciple was he spent time with them. He invested time with them. I mean, other than the fact that he was always pointing them to God, it was that time that he was investing. Beyond that, it almost seems like he was intentionally diverse in his training methods. You remember in the gospel accounts, Jesus does a lot of healing. Well, sometimes he'd travel to the people to heal them. Sometimes he'd travel and he'd even lay his hands on them. But other times he wouldn't. Sometimes he'd heal them from a distance. Sometimes he'd get real creative and he'd spit on the ground and make some mud and slather it on their eyes. And so he used all these different methods to do these healings. You read through the Gospels, there were times where Jesus was confronted or questioned or even attacked. There were groups who came, they wanted to kill him. What would he do? Sometimes he'd just leave. You read those Gospel accounts, it's like he'd just wander off. Do we stop and realize how cool that was? But other times, he'd confront the person who was confronting him. Sometimes he'd ask questions in response to those questions. Now, it was always to get to the heart of the question being asked, to get to the motivation behind the question. But it was also intentional because he was training the disciples. That's what he was doing. So the reality is, as we embark on this process of disciple-making, I want us to remember it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. It's not supposed to be a cookie-cutter type approach where we'll just make one disciple after the other. They all look the same. What we want to do is observe what the situation requires and then use the methods that are going to be appropriate and are going to be effective in that situation. Because as Jesus walked with the 12, that's what he did. He adapted his discipleship methods. He adapted to different techniques for different situations they were encountering. You know, if the disciples were just clueless or uninformed, then Jesus would instruct them. But if they'd already been informed and they were just confused, he did it differently. He kind of walked alongside them and led them and guided them. Sometimes they were just reluctant, and so he'd walk behind them and and encourage them. He kind of prodded them along like we see Paul doing with Timothy last week. And one of the really neat, one of the practical things that Jesus did, we also saw this with Paul and Timothy last week, we're going to see it this week with Moses and Joshua, was that while the disciples were being trained, they were also doing ministry. Jesus didn't wait until disciples got done and could pass some kind of test on discipleship before he put them out there and let them get their feet wet in ministry. He gave them ministry responsibility, and then he walked along with them. And that was one of the ways they were equipped. And then after they were equipped, that's when he sent them out to carry the gospel message around the world. We try really hard to employ that strategy here at the chapel. I've done this for years. If you've ever been in a small group with me, you can attest to this. I get folks in my small group, and I lead the small group for a while. But as I do, I'm always praying, and I'm trying to prepare, hey, who's going to be the next person to lead this small group? And so by about this time, at the end of the first semester, I ask somebody else, hey, why don't you lead for a couple weeks? I'll hang out in here with you, you know. And what I'm doing is, is I'm trying to prepare that person to go lead their own small group. I see a guy smiling that I've done that to <laughs> before. You know, and, and so when you look at that, the idea is hopefully then the spring semester, they start to realize, hey, God's calling me to something here. And they're being equipped. And by the next year, they're leading a small group. I think it's a really, really neat thing to do. But I didn't invent it. <laughs> it's one of the techniques that we see here in the Bible. So today we're going to dig into the lives of Moses and Joshua and look at what are the things that make them such great examples for us in this area of discipleship. Now the things we know about these guys dominate several books of the Old Testament, so we're not going to be able to look at every account. But I want to focus on just a few key areas in Joshua's life that hopefully we can learn from and engage in, and they'll provide instruction for us as we go and engage in this process. So if you look at all the books, the Old Testament books, Moses and Joshua are really kind of tied together a lot in Scripture. They had this incredible relationship. 
And it was one where you see Joshua progress along the way, kind of like Timothy did with Paul last week. At first, Joshua's just along for the ride, and then he becomes Moses' assistant. And then, eventually, he becomes the leader of God's people as they go and possess the promised land. And so I studied this week, and I was really struck by the number of similarities between Moses and Joshua's lives in Scripture. And I was also really impacted because there's a lot of situations that Joshua ends up in that I believe really point just directly to Jesus Christ. We see events in the life of Moses and Joshua that are similar to events we see with Jesus and the disciples in the gospel accounts. So follow me on this. I think there's lots of similarities between Moses and Joshua. They both end up leading God's people. And I think sometimes, I know I do this, maybe you do too, I lose sight of just how big a deal that was. And this wasn't just a couple families and a few cows. I mean, most likely this group, this entire nation, grew to as big as two million people. Moses leads them out of Egypt. Moses, if you imagine, leads them around the desert for 40 years. And then Joshua steps in. He's the one that leads them into the promised land. So similarities. God parts the water for both of these guys. God parts the water, and Moses leads the Israelites across the Red Sea. God parts the water again. Joshua leads them across the Jordan River. Both of these guys allocate land. Moses never makes it into the promised land, but he allocates land on the east side of the Jordan for cities of refuge. Of course, Joshua is the one who allocates land for the 12 tribes on the west side. Both Moses and Joshua just incredibly tight with the Lord. Scripture indicates this over and over again. They both get these incredible presence of God moments in really unusual situations where they have to take off their sandals because the place where they're standing is holy ground. You remember that? happens to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. What happens to Joshua in Joshua 5 with the commander of the Lord's army? And at the end of their lives, both Moses and Joshua earn these incredible titles in Scripture. They're both referred to as servants of the Lord. That's a great title to aspire to. So there's lots of similarities in their lives, but also I think a couple big differences. And the one we'll look at today, it's a notable difference, is in the way that they lead people. And I think this is really practical for us because it points to the fact that discipleship's not a cookie-cutter experience. If someone comes and pours into your life, if they disciple you, it doesn't mean you've got to lead like they do. You have to lead like God has fearfully and wonderfully made you, like he's wired you to lead. But you still can be instructed by somebody who leads differently. That's okay. As we see in Scripture, even though Moses is Joshua's discipler, Joshua serves 40 years as his assistant, they don't lead in exactly the same way. As you read the accounts on Moses, he was incredibly close to God. Scripture indicates in a way that I just can't totally grasp that God and Moses hung out. I mean, it was an intimate thing. It was like a face-to-face thing, only it wasn't because Exodus chapter 33 indicates that Moses wanted to see God's glory in its fullness. And God said, oh, no, 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 no. We're tight, Moses, but nobody can look on my face and live. So you can only see the backside of my glory. But in some way, God and Moses were really, really close. And I think part of the issue, one of the things that Moses really struggled with was why everybody else didn't have that kind of relationship with God. Moses was just devoted to him, and he couldn't understand how the people weren't the same way. Do you have anything like that in your life? I hope it's your relationship with the Lord. But, I mean, do you have something where you're, like, really passionate about it and you can't understand why everybody else doesn't get it? There's several things in my life. One of them, I'm a baseball guy. Baseball is my favorite sport. I think it's the the thinking man's game. 
And I also think hitting a round ball with a round bat squarely is probably the hardest thing to do in sports. So I, just, I love baseball. But as much as it pains me to admit it, some folks don't get baseball. And so I always say, well, you know, they just don't get it. If you really understood the strategy, you know, if you really followed the game, if you really got the nuances, you know. But, but I try that, and they just respond, no, it's boring. And it, it, it blows my mind because I can't fathom how they could say that. But then they tell me, oh, you know, well, soccer is my favorite sport. Or hockey or NASCAR, you know, some other sport that I don't get. Well, then the roles are switched because they're trying to tell me why it's so great. And I'm going, I just don't get it. I think that's kind of the way it was with Moses and the Israelites. He loved God so much, he just couldn't get why everybody else around him didn't. Why weren't they weren't giving him the honor and the love that he deserved? But even in that, as much as Moses loved the Lord, while he was leading God's people, even though they didn't seem to trust him as much as he did, he still had this huge heart for him. And you remember in Scripture, numerous times he pleads with God for them because it seems like God has just had it up to here with him. And he's going to wipe them out. Now, here's the deal. <laughs> if we were totally sovereign over all that we'd created, maybe we could grasp how that works. But we're not. So, so we just have to understand and allow that God has a plan in that scenario. He wasn't going to wipe his people out. It's just like he has a plan with how sin entered the world and how he sent his son to reconcile sinful people to himself through Jesus' death and resurrection. He has a plan in that. He's God. He's got it covered. So Moses clearly loved the Lord with everything he had and had a great heart for God's people. But as you read the accounts, they didn't seem to have a great heart for him sometimes. It seems like sometimes they didn't care about the Lord. And this is where I think you see the biggest difference between Moses and Joshua. Psychologists today would say that Moses was a transactional leader, but Joshua was a transformational leader. People seemed to like Moses okay, and in conjunction they seemed to like God okay, when things were going well for them. But if anything turned sour, I mean, the second something didn't go right, well, then they were grumbling and complaining and throwing Moses under the bus. And really, if you think about it, that, that's thumbing your nose at God. You see this over and over again. It happens in Exodus chapter 5, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17, Numbers chapter 14, 16, 20, 21. It happens in Deuteronomy chapter 21. The Israelites just wailing and moaning and grumbling and blaming Moses and blaming God. And so what it seemed to happen so much in response was that Moses would try to complete a transaction with them. He'd try to give them what they wanted. And that's kind of the earmark of transactional leadership. It's where you're concerned with trying to meet people's self-interests. You know, so the Israelites complained about water, so Moses found a way to get them water. They complained and grumbled about food. Moses found a way to get them food. But you look at the life of Joshua, and he led differently. Even though Moses was his guy, even though Moses poured into him for 40 years, Joshua wasn't a transactional leader. He wanted the Israelites to love God as much as he did. He wanted the Israelites to love God as much as Moses had. But he didn't bargain with them to try and make it happen. One of the greatest accounts in Joshua occurs right at the end of the book. It's in chapter 24 where Joshua is coming to the end and he's led his people well and he desires so much for them. He wants them to be transformed. And so he says famously, hey, choose who you're going to serve. Me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. And we've said this before in this Make series, choosing to follow Jesus, that may not be the easiest choice for us. We understand that. But it's going to be the most abundant. It's where the life is. So it's that idea of transactional leadership versus transformational leadership. 
And I guarantee you see this around you today. I see this happen in my house all the time. I desire something for my kids. I want the best for them. I want them to transform. They haven't totally gotten it yet. At our house, we don't try to be, you know, militaristic about this, but we don't let our kids just play video games or computer games all the time. We, we allow them a certain amount of time. And so if you're over at my house, you'll hear this. If kids are done with their homework or done with their chores, they'll come and ask, hey, can I play my time? And the idea is we don't want to be the police about it. I'm not sitting trying to, to monitor it all the time. I want to teach them to do it. I want them to be looking at the clock and knowing, hey, I've got this much time to play. We're still working on that, by the way. <laughs> but, but in that, what happens, one of my kids the other day, They'd already played their time, and they were coming and lobbying for some more time. <laughs> Which, I mean, I understand. And they were getting pretty creative, and it was a great effort. But we said no, and so they threw a fit. I won't tell you which one of my kids this was. So I had this decision to make. What should I have done? I could have been a transactional leader and said, hey, stop whining. Go play. Leave me alone. Or should I have been a transformational leader and allowed him to learn from this trial, from this hard experience, and say, hey, you don't always get what you want. I want more for you. I'm going to let you guess which one I chose, but, but this is the kind of thing we see with Moses and Joshua. The people are whining and grumbling and complaining to Moses, and they suffer consequences. I mean, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. None of them, nobody except for Joshua and Caleb even make it into the promised land. But if you read through the book of Joshua, this just really struck me this week, I can only see one public sin recorded during his tenure. If you remember, that was Achan's sin in Joshua chapter 7. It's where Achan disobeyed the command to not take any of the plunder in battle. And if you remember that account, God and Joshua dealt with that immediately and publicly. And you don't see any more sin mentioned in the rest of the book. See, Joshua didn't allow these folks to serve their own self-interest. He wanted transformation for God's people. He wanted them to transform from a nation of grumblers into a nation that loved the Lord with all their heart. So there's not a cookie-cutter approach to discipleship. But there are. We're going to keep pointing to this. There are methods in Scripture that we can see people using. And so the question becomes, can we apply those? Can we do those things in a way that it will translate into discipleship in our life? And I think the answer is yes, for sure. So the rest of the time today, we're going to look at some specific examples in Scripture of ways that Moses discipled Joshua. And then I'm going to challenge you and say, hey, can we use those things in our life as we seek to be a church of disciple makers? So we'll spend our time in the Old Testament. Go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 9. As you read through there, especially if you read the book of Joshua, you see him leading God's people. Even the way Joshua does it doesn't look the same all the time. Joshua's first major victory in taking over Jericho, it wasn't even a fair fight. Joshua didn't do anything. God did it. Joshua just led a bunch of marching and, and shouting. That doesn't sound so tough, does it? But after that victory, as you see the rest of the accounts, they fight a lot. And from that point forward, Joshua reminds us much more of gladiator or braveheart, you know, than a guy who's leading cheers. So if you look in Exodus 17.9, this is a neat thing because this is the first account we have of Joshua. And if you ever asked, hey, where did he learn to fight? You know, when did he become this mighty warrior of God? This is where it is. Verse 9 of chapter 17. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. He says, Tomorrow I'll station myself on the top of the hill with a staff of God in my hand. Now at first, this may not have sounded so great for Joshua. Hold on, I'm going to go fight and you're going to do what? 
You're going to stand on a mountain with a stick? What are you doing? But of course, I think there, there are just tons of valuable lessons here, applicable lessons. Because in this account, Moses is intentionally discipling Joshua. He's going to let him lead, but he's going to be right there watching over him. And so we learn lessons in this about how God provides. And there's great lessons even in Moses' part. Because remember, he grows weak, and he needs Aaron and her to come and hold his arms up. So that God's people who are fighting down in the valley, they're being led by Joshua so they can win the battle when his hands are up. I think we learn in that. We learn about encouragement and community. But I think the biggest lesson here is that we realize, well, it was God that chose Joshua to be discipled. And it was God that chose Moses to do it. And God is going to be involved in every step. This is the first mention of Joshua. We haven't heard anything about him in Scripture up to this point. Where did he come from? Well, it says he's the son of Nun, who doesn't seem to be a prominent figure in the Bible. So there's another good lesson for us. God can and will use anybody he desires. You don't have to be a somebody. God will make you a somebody. Joshua most likely had been just one of the slaves. I mean, I'm assuming he was a worker. He was probably building the pyramids. Now, I'm going to make the assumption that those guys had to be strong. They were working these physically demanding jobs, but I don't think they were soldiers in any sense, do you? I, mean, I, th- I think if they were trained as soldiers, they would have risen up against the Egyptians years before. So Joshua's this strong guy, and he's just part of the crowd until Moses comes up and he says, hey, tomorrow, pick some guys and form an army and go fight against Amalek. Now, who's Amalek in this account? He's a descendant of Esau in Scripture. I don't have time to go into a lot of detail, but in the picture of those brothers, Jacob and Esau, Jacob is always the one who's pictured as being blessed. And so Esau is the one who's pictured as being not blessed. And so here, the Amalekites, they're they're the picture of what's not best for God's people. God's people are heading to the promised land. That's going to be the best for them. And here they come in and they're attacked by the Amalekites. But we see Moses leading really well here because he's been hanging out with God. And so he comes up with this plan. God guides him, and he delegates responsibility to Joshua. But Moses knows he's still going to be a big part of this because he's got the important part up on top of the mountain. Too much information to look at every part of that story. But what about for us? Where's the takeaway for us in discipleship? And I believe it's in the obedience part. Moses was obedient to God's command to go to Joshua. And then when he does, Joshua was obedient to Moses' command even though it was a ridiculously hard one. Can you imagine that scenario if somebody comes up to you and you've never been trained as a warrior, you're not a soldier, and they go, hey, pick some guys, you're going to be in a big fight tomorrow. What was it that made Joshua so obedient? Well, I think it's the things that have been happening in his life up to this point in time. I think it was his love for the Lord because he'd been seeing stuff that God was doing. He would have seen the plagues. He would have seen manna appear on the ground. He would have seen God part the water. And so he's learned all these things. And he's fallen more and more in love with God. He loves the Lord, just like Moses does. I think that's why God chooses him to be the next leader. It's why he chooses Moses to be his discipler. And I'm pretty sure that's confirmed just a few verses later. In Exodus chapter 17 and verse 14, this is right after God gave his people the victory against Amalek through Moses, through Joseph. The Lord says this to Moses, write this in a book. This cool thing that just happened that I did, write this in a book as a memorial and then recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. Why is it so important 
that Moses record this and tell Joshua. Because I think this is the sign that God had picked Joshua for Moses to disciple. And so Joshua was going to have to learn how to fight because he was going to be the one to lead God's people into the promised land. Obedience is the takeaway there. Joshua was obedient to this very, very hard task. And because of it, he experienced God's blessing. And so we've got to ask ourselves that question. As we move forward in developing disciple relationships and, and doing ministry, will we show this kind of obedience? We're going to have to pray about this for sure, but what if we do? What if we're praying and we sense God is asking us to pour into someone who doesn't seem all that special? They're probably the son of none. What if it seems like they don't have any significant gifts? What if they're not like us? Will we be obedient if we truly feel God calling us to that person? It worked for Moses and Joshua. Obedience is a huge part of the discipleship process. I don't believe God's going to call any of us to go fight the Amalekites. But what if the thing he's requiring us to do takes great faith? He's already given us the command to make disciples. What if he's asking us to volunteer for a ministry? What if he wants us to start a ministry? What if he wants us to sacrificially support a ministry? Will we be obedient? Maybe he's calling us to adopt a child. Maybe he's calling us to support an orphanage. Maybe we're supposed to comfort a brother or sister. Maybe we're supposed to correct a brother or sister. What is it in our lives that's going to require great obedience today? And then what can we learn from Moses and Joshua about discipleship. I think obedience is one of the keys. I think one of the other great lessons we can learn from their lives is the lesson about being a servant leader. It's a clear lesson from Jesus in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. But you know, as Jesus came to teach that, and he was modeling servant leadership with his disciples, that wasn't a new teaching. That had been around in the Old Testament for sure. We see this in the lives of Moses and Joshua. So we have to realize as we're making disciples, as we're being discipled, we need to be servants. There was a period of time, it was a long period of time, after Joshua was selected in Exodus 17, where he was going to be Moses' disciple. For 40 years, he served as Moses' assistant. He was, he was a servant. It's the title he was given. You see this in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 3. 13, flip over a few chapters to Exodus 24, 13. So Moses arose with Joshua, his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. This reminds me of the account of Jesus going to the mountain of transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. He's going to meet with Moses and Elijah, and he takes Peter, James, and John along with him. And so they get to see things that other people don't get to see. Well, Moses does the same thing here with his disciple Joshua. And Joshua had a job to do while he was there. He wasn't there just to hang out. He was supposed to do hard work. He was supposed to do servant's work. If you flip over a few more chapters, to Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11, you see almost the same thing. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. But when Moses returned to the camp, his servant, Joshua, the son of Nun, he was a young man at that time, he would not depart from the tent. Now again, face-to-face -face can't mean exactly the way we think of it, but God and Moses are friends. They are hanging out there. And Joshua, Moses' servant, he's right there too. He's going where no one else gets to go. But what, what's he doing up there on the mountain? What's he doing there in the tent of meeting? Servant in Hebrew is the word sheroth. 
and it means menial. It carries the notion of waiting on somebody hand and foot. It talks about rendering important services to important people. And that's what Joshua was doing. But as you look at the lives of these guys, it becomes clear that Joshua was doing more than that. I mean, he wasn't just there to carry stuff or start campfires for Moses. This is a picture of Moses discipling him. He's pouring into him. And so Moses is going to have these incredible moments with God, and he brings Joshua along with him. I think we can see a real practical lesson here from that sense of if we would ever dream of being leaders, we better understand what it means to be a servant. I remember in college, I used to read case studies. I was getting my degree, and and it was studies of these people who started businesses, these great Fortune 500 companies. And it'd start so much of the time with an immigrant guy or a guy who was a lowly guy. He'd come, and he'd just work hard. He'd pull himself up by his bootstraps, and he'd start this incredible business. And and the sad reality of it was a few generations later, the business would be gone. And this this guy may have had a great work ethic and these great ideas, and, and he'd achieve something, and then he'd have kids, and he wouldn't train them to do the same thing that he did. Instead, he'd try and take his kids and just pass on the business to them. They'd inherit it, but, but they inherited a management position. They'd never served down in, in the lower rungs of the corporate ladder. They'd never served in the mailroom. They didn't know how to build rapport with these people. And so you'd read case study after case study of these businesses that would fail. And their undoing was they put people in leadership positions who didn't know how to serve. See, Joshua is learning to serve here. And then he's learning more. He's going to need to know how to serve in order to be an effective leader. So Moses is doing Joshua a great service here by letting him serve. But I think Moses is even more intentional than that because he's not just teaching him how to serve. If you look in both of these passages, in Exodus 24 and in Exodus 33, when Joshua is there with Moses as a servant, Moses is going to meet with God. He goes to meet with him on the mountain. He goes to meet with him in the tent. But did you catch the last part of Exodus 33, 11? It says, when Moses returned, he went back to the camp. His servant Joshua, the son of Nun, would not depart from the tent. So Moses is discipling and mentoring Joshua on more than the work of God. This is the trickiest part to me. He's discipling him on his walk with God. Moses goes back to the camp. Joshua is there. What's he doing? He's staying in the Lord's presence. This, to me, is just a picture of Joshua falling more deeply in love with the Lord. Here's the reality as we're discipling. I'll tell you this right now. It's easier to train somebody to do a task. It's going to be much easier to teach somebody how to facilitate a small group or how to set up tables and chairs and take them back down. Those things are pretty easy. It's a lot easier to do that than to train somebody to humbly walk with God, to desire to be in God's presence. And I think Moses seemed really committed to doing both those things. Moses wanted to be a servant leader, and Joshua had a servant heart, made it possible. Moses had to know. He just had to know that in order to lead God's people into the promised land, it was going to take more than just a mighty warrior. Yes, that was going to be important. But it was going to take somebody who was deeply in love with the Lord. And so Moses invests all this time in Joshua. And because he does... God's plan moves forward. All that work that Moses has invested in leading the people didn't stop when he died because Moses poured into the next generation of leaders and they were ready to take the baton and run this race. This is one of the most important things for us as we grasp this idea of being challenged to make disciples. We don't want the work of God to stop with us. 
We need to build a legacy, a legacy of praying for and developing and entrusting the next generation of leaders to move forward. And when we're looking at those people we're going to disciple, are we praying, hey, Lord, show me somebody with a servant's heart and a servant's attitude. And then are we praying, Lord, give me a servant's heart and a servant's attitude. If in everything we did, everything, we're going out to eat here later today, we're at our workplace, we're at our school, if we did all that with a servant's attitude, if we didn't want to just come to church, if we wanted to go and be the church, that was part of our thumbprint here at the chapel, that we're going to ask every day, how can I serve the city around me? How can I serve my community, my school? I think we'd be blown away by, by the fact that God would use us as he transforms the city. So we need to model obedience as we make disciples. We need to be servant leaders, model servants' hearts to the people we're pouring into. And here's another point, and this is a tough one too. We need to be willing to accept correction. Look at Numbers. Flip over to the book of Numbers, chapter 11, and verses 28 to 29. We'll have verses on the screen to help you out too. Here's Numbers 11, 28 and 29. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. So in this passage, Moses calls Joshua out a little bit here. And so you have to ask, well, what's going on? Well, in the context, Moses has gathered this group of 70 elders, and they were going to go to the tent of meeting. They're going to meet with God, and God's going to take some of the anointing that's on Moses and put it on these guys. Remember, in the Old Testament, everybody didn't get the Holy Spirit. That's an incredible gift for us as followers of Christ now. We get the Holy Spirit when we profess faith in Christ. These guys, they had to have the Holy Spirit put on them. And so these elders are going to have that done, and they're going to begin to prophesy in the camp. But there were two guys, Eldad and Medad, they didn't like meetings. So they skipped the meeting. They didn't go out to the tent of meeting. But even though they, got, you know, they skipped out, they still got the Holy Spirit. They still got that anointing. And so they were in the camp already, and they're prophesying. Well, Joshua doesn't like this. Joshua's a by-the-book kind of guy. And so he goes straight to Moses, and he says, oh, my gosh, what's happening? They skipped the meeting. They can't do that. This reminds me again of one of the scenes from the Gospel. If you remember the one in Luke 9, James and John go to Jesus and want to call fire down on the Samaritan village. James and John are so much more worked up about something than Jesus was. Well, here it's the same thing. Joshua gets all fired up, and Moses does this neat thing because he both commends him, but then he corrects him. And I think we can learn a lot from this. He commends Joshua for sticking up for him. I mean, Joshua is Moses' servant. He knows he's not the leader yet, so he follows the chain of command. He reports to Moses what's going on. He says, they're doing this wrong. And you see Moses reply, and he says, hey, thanks. You know, thanks for your loyalty to me. That's great as the leader. Thanks for your desire to have this work in order. That's wonderful. But basically, you know, the leader's not the only person that God can use or speak through. He kind of corrects him in that. And I think Moses gives a foreshadowing of what we get to see after Pentecost. He says, I wish everybody could get this anointing. Remember that in the Gospels. Jesus keeps telling people, hey, I'm going to leave and it's going to be better for you. But they can't possibly grasp what that's like because they're with Jesus and, and they don't understand. And he's trying to say after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit will come and Christ followers will never have to worry about God not being with us. So Moses is pointing towards that. He says, hey, I wish everybody would get that gift. That would be incredible. 
But again, because he's so intentional, Moses does this great job of discipling here. He affirms Joshua. He affirms the fact that he's zealous for the Lord. He's zealous for his leader. But then he corrects him for not seeing the big picture. I had an experience a few years ago now that reminds me of this, and it was so funny. When I was on Young Life staff, you know, Young Life's missionary work, like anything, you have to raise your salary, you have to raise your budget. Well, I had several student staff guys who worked for me, and so you'd have to help them raise their budget too. And so I had this one guy, he was great, he really had a lot of future in ministry, and he comes on staff, and, and I help him raise his support, and I set up some meetings, and he writes a fundraising letter, and he sends it out, and he raises all his money, it's great. Well, the next year comes along, and he wants to stay on staff, so he's going to, you know, show some initiative. He doesn't come to me. He just starts setting up the meetings, and he writes a letter, but he doesn't tell me. And so he mails the letter out, and I didn't even know anything about it. And so I'm sitting in my office one day, and I get a check in the mail for this kid, and it's wrapped in the letter that he sent out. And so I read the letter, and, and you know, part of it was great. Part of it was explaining what he was doing. But then the other part, he was kind of trying to give people a little sense of what was going on in his life, and he'd just gotten engaged. And so he writes a part in the letter that I know he didn't mean to, but he, he made it sound like, hey, thanks for all that money you sent into Young Life. I bought a ring, and I'm getting engaged. And it really didn't read well at all. I couldn't believe people were sending money, you know. And so I had this great opportunity to go to him and say, yeah, man, I appreciate you taking some initiative, but, but you can't do this. And he had such a great reaction. His reaction was a little like Joshua's here, where he was so humble. And I read it to him, and he was like, oh, my gosh, I never even saw that, you know. Looks like I'm misappropriating funds here. And it really did. And so he wrote another letter to all these folks who supported him. He said, that was not what I meant to do at all. You send this money, you're supporting ministry. It was great. So when we look at stuff like this, we have to look at the heart behind it. And in that situation, I did. I approached that guy, and I walked him through it, and he took the correction well and humbly. And so we have to realize that was an opportunity for him to grow, and for me to grow, because I was able to give him some correction. Finally, our last point, it's a quick one, but it's important. <laughs> we need to make disciples who make disciples so we can continue to leave that legacy we've been talking about, so the Lord's work can continue to move forward. If you'll flip over to Numbers chapter 27, we're going to read a good bit of this because it's so perfect. Numbers chapter 27, we'll start at verse 12. This is where you see the intentionality of leave, leaving a legacy. In verse 12, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up to this mountain of Eberim and see the land which I have given to the sons of Israel. He tells Moses to go look at the promised land. He says, When you've seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother was. Why? Because in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy before their eyes at the water. God says, Moses, you struck the rock instead of speaking to it. And so now, I'm going to let you see the promised land, but you're not going to lead the people in. Would you have been upset? I mean, it seems like such a little thing. But here, here's the story in Scripture. With disobedience, there are consequences. And I think this is great, because Moses doesn't grumble. Moses doesn't complain. Instead, he shows his heart for God's people. And he says, hey, if it's not going to be me, it's going to have to be somebody. The people are going to need somebody to lead them in. Who's that going to be? Well, who do you think? Here's how Moses asked this question in the next verses, starting at verse 15. It says, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and will lead them out and bring them in 
so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. See, Moses has the same heart that we see Jesus having in the Gospels where he looks at people and he hurts for them. He doesn't want them to be like sheep without a shepherd. And here's how the Lord replies, starting in verse 18. He says, take Joshua. He's the son of Nun. He's a man in whom the Spirit, in whom is the Spirit. You lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and commission him in their sight. You put some of your authority on him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. Moreover, he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. And at his command they shall go out. And at his command they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregations. Now Moses is going to be the leader. Or pardon me, Joshua is going to be the leader. But see, he didn't lobby for this. This wasn't a position Joshua was looking for. He wasn't asking for this responsibility. As you read the beginning of Joshua, you'll see over and over again, he has to be encouraged to do it. How many times does it say, hey, you've got to be strong and courageous? You've got to be strong and courageous to accept that next role. But that's the next step for him because Moses left this legacy in Joshua because Joshua was obedient, because he was a servant leader, because he learned through correction. And so now he's going to be God's choice to lead the Israelites in. There's so many things we can learn from this example of discipleship. Maybe not things that we'll repeat exactly. Maybe these things, obedience and servant leadership and learning from correction. Maybe the thing we learned last week, encouragement, as Paul encouraged Timothy. Maybe those are going to be some of the methods we'll use as we make disciples. Or maybe there'll be other things that God will show us. And we'll use some combination of those things. I don't know what it'll be. But these questions that come up from looking at the lives of Moses and Joshua, they're good ones to think about as we close our service today. Where in our lives is God calling us to be obedient? And then you've got to ask the follow-up question, will we do it? How can we serve every one of us practically this week in our homes, in our schools, in our workplace? How can we serve this city where God's put us? Because we could help God transform it. Where does correction need to happen in our lives? And as it does, how will we accept it? Will we accept it humbly for God's glory? Are we engaging in this make disciples process so we can leave a legacy for the Lord, not for ourselves, as we make disciples who make disciples? Good questions. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for challenging us from your word today. God, thanks for providing examples for us of discipleship. God, burden our hearts as a local church to be the church you want us to be. God, I'm just more and more convinced as we work through this series this is exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Help us to be intentional about it, Lord. We don't want to just talk about it and not engage with you. God, we love you. Thanks for all these folks who came to worship today. Keep us safe as we travel. God, we know that you have a plan. We just love you so much. We ask all those things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you if you could sit just for another couple seconds because I want to invite Brett Powell and his family.